Hello and welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight. My name is Mohamed Eldafani and our guest in this episode is Tunisian analyst Dr Ali Shukri who will be discussing the current political situation in his country. To start with, I will outline the issues at stake in the present state of affairs in Tunisia. Tunisia is one of two states that survived intact the so-called Arab Spring. The wave of unrest swept across parts of North Africa and the Middle East and soon turned into a bloody nightmare. The other survivor, Egypt, returned to a form of the status quo ante thanks to the backlash produced by the Muslim Brotherhood's push to monopolize power and turn Egypt into an Islamic state. As for the three remaining victims of the nightmare, Yemen became embroiled in an intensified civil war compounded by a brutal Saudi-led invasion, while Syria and Libya fell into an orgy of cannibalism that left them on the brink of extinction. However, the precarious stability experienced by Tunisia was not to last. The political relaxation that followed the ouster of the regime of President Zain al-Abidin bin Ali saw the return from exile of Islamists such as Rashid Ghannouchi, and the legalization of his Muslim Brotherhood in Nahda, or Islamic Renaissance, party, and the resurfacing of local Islamist extremists and terrorists, Salafists of various hues, including Ansar al-Sharia and Islamic State group. Soon, Tunisia began to experience a wave of Islamist bigotry and violence, with attacks on alcohol sellers, riots against art exhibitions, and in Nahda led the government reducing women's rights in a draft constitution that referred to women as complementary to men, the assassination of opposition leaders, and terrorist attacks against the museum and the tourist resort. The situation continued to slide and reached a climax in July 2021, when President Qais Saeed dismissed the Prime Minister and suspended Parliament pending a referendum on a new constitution. In response to a series of protests against the Nahda party, economic hardship and the historic rise in COVID-19 cases in the country. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Shukri. First, in your assessment, what exactly led to President Qais Saeed's July 2021 decision? To what extent do you consider the Islamist Nahda party responsible for the crisis in Tunisia, which prompted him to suspend parliament and freeze political activities? Also, is the president correct in accusing the party of planning a slow-motion coup? Okay, thank you for having me, Muhammad. It's a pleasure to take part in this podcast. Uh, to go back to your question, um, for, for years since former President Ben Ali was deposed, Tunisia was plagued by security issues and terrorist attacks. It has also had nine governments most of which have been dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood-inspired Mahda. The most recent election delivered a fragmented chamber in which no party held more than a quarter of seats. In October 2019, the year uh, uh, Qais Saeed was elected president, the results of legislative elections in Tunisia produced a fragmented parliament consisting of parliamentarians representing 30 different electoral lists. This splintered legislature posed difficulties for both government formation and effective decision-making. The Anada party secured the biggest number of MPs, but did not have a majority of seats, which made it struggle to form a government. Instead, 
temporary alliances between parties and parliamentary blocs were formed, ineffective governance and constant infighting led to a rapid decline in both the popularity of both the parliament as an institution and parliamentarians as individual politicians. The coalitions were diverse and lacked a common purpose. This left citizens frustrated and disillusioned, which increased their nostalgia for the decisiveness of the previous authoritarian system. This widespread disdain for the People's Assembly of Representatives uh, helped lay the ground for Qais Saeed's decisions on 25th of July 2021. The countrywide social unrest preceding Saeed's decisions came as hundreds of protesters rallied in each of the main cities after a spike in COVID-19 cases that aggravated economic troubles and exposed the failings of a squabbling political class. Reports say that more than 18,000 people in the, country of 12, in, a, in the country of 12 million died of coronavirus since the pandemic be began. Overwhelming, crumbling public health services and crippling the vital tourism industry. Witnesses said protesters tried to storm in other offices in Monastir, Sfax, Lukev, and Sous, while in Tozer's, Tozer in the, in the south, they set fire to the another party's local headquarters. After a year of wrangling with Prime Minister um, Meshishi and the leader of another, Rashid Ranushi, who was also Parliament Speaker, President Sayed declared the army would take over the pandemic response, particularly after Prime Minister Meshishi sacked the Health Minister, who was an, an ally of the President, prompting the latter to instruct the military to take over the management of the coronavirus crisis. On 25th of July 2021, President Saeed invoked Article 80 of the 2014 Constitution to sack the government of the day, led by Prime Minister Mashishi, and suspended the parliament after mass protests throughout the country against the government. He has since taken further steps to consolidate his power by dissolving the parliament and replacing the top judicial body, as well as appointing a committee to draft a new constitution and putting it to a referendum for approval. Some observers had no doubt that preparations for the coup, for what is called by some coup in Tunisia on the 25th of July 2021, had been underway since October 2019, the month of Saeed's election into presidency. Since he was elected, Saeed has been frank regarding his opinions and his intentions. The parliamentary system is poison. The separation of powers hinders my ability to act. Parties are expired instruments in politics. Parliament means chaos. Said repeated these statements at every opportunity for the, for the last 
two years. Syed's opponents in parliament, led by the parliament speaker, as we said, and another leader, Rashid Ghanoushi, immediately accused him of staging a coup. This has also given rise to serious international worries about what some called a drift towards authoritarianism in Tunisia. The president said that Article 80 of the 2014 Constitution gave him emergency powers for his actions and allowed him to suspend parliament if the country was in imminent danger. He found the politicians bickering and corruption, uh, the economic failures, uh, the waves of deadly illegal migration attempts towards Europe, rampant COVID pandemic, and the potential terrorist attacks due to the return of uh, terrorists from Syria, as well as the porous borders with Algeria and Libya, more than one valid reason to act as he did. But the opposition disputed this in view of the unclear Tunisia's legal and political framework. The 2014 constitution calls for a constitutional court to be set up to decide disagreements like this. But this court has never been established due to political paralysis, which seems to have helped President Syed implement his drastic changes without any insurmountable constitutional hurdles. Okay, thank you very much for a very, very insightful answer. The, the new constitution has now been adopted in a referendum, albeit with a, quite a low turnout. What are the salient points in it and why has it proved so controversial? Uh, very important and very interesting question, Mohammed. Syed always considered that the latest um, uh, the constitution was ambiguous, and I mean the 2014 uh, uh, constitution, dividing authority between the Speaker of Parliament, the Prime Minister, and the President without clearly uh, delineating their prerogatives, sorry. Um, the, the, the text of the new constitution gives the president a free hand and ultimate authority over the government and judiciary. The move towards a more presidential system would reverse the post-2011 revolution parliamentary model that the country had adopted. The government would answer to the president and not to the parliament. The chamber, however, could withdraw confidence from the government with a two-thirds majority, the official, the Tunisian official gazette said. The new constitution allows Syed to continue to rule by decree until the creation of a new parliament after an election um, set for 17th of December 2022. Syed would be allowed to present draft laws, have sole responsibility for proposing treaties and drafting state bud budgets, appoint or sack government ministers and appoint judges. The president would be able to serve two terms of five years each, but extend them if he felt there was an imminent danger to the state and would have the right 
to dissolve parliament while no clause allows for the removal of the president. The new constitution stipulates that the president would be the head of the armed forces and be charged in naming judges who would be banned by him from going on strike. The document also waters down the role of parliament, creating a new parliamentary chamber for regions and districts, which fits with Syed's long-held vision for a decentralization of power. The first article of the document removes references to both Islam and the civilian nature of the state of Tunisia, simply saying that it is a free, independent and sovereign state, adding further down in Article 5 that the country belongs to the Islamic nation and that it would work to achieve the objectives or purposes of Islam in preserving people's souls, honor, property, religion and freedom. The president himself amended the constitutional draft on 8th of July to include a requirement that the process of quote, working to achieve the purposes of Islam, unquote, be carried out, quote, within the framework of democratic system, unquote. Despite this qualification, this provision could be used to justify curbs on rights, such as gender discrimination and inheritance inequality based on untouchable religious stipulations in the Quran. In this context, two years in the run-up of the 2014 constitution, another, the ruling Islamist party, sparked a storm of controversy in, uh, precisely in 2012, when it tried to introduce the concept of, uh, of uh, gender complementarity, which you mentioned in your um, intro, rather than equality, in the then draft constitution. Further to an ongoing social and political uproar by women, civil society and secular political parties, women's rights activists in Tunisia hailed the provisional approval of Article 20 the, in the 2014 constitution, which stated that all male and female citizens have the same rights and duties. They are equal before the law without discrimination. The new text was agreed during, to negotiate, uh, during negotiations between Nada and the secular opposition, which um, thrashed, thrashed out a series of compromises aimed at bringing about an end to the political crisis triggered by the assassination of an opposition politician by suspect Islamist militants last, um, well, in 2013. However, in spite of the Constitution's progressive language, and this applies, actually applies to both the 2014 and 2020 Constitutions, women still face legal discrimination in a number of key areas, including their ability to, to inherit, uh, to obtain citizen, citizenship rights for um, a foreign spouse, to obtain custody of their children in the case of remarriage after divorce and to receive protection in situations of domestic violence. 
women who work in the private sector also face challenges because of uneven implementation of labor laws. Other than that, the new constitution maintains most parts of the sections in its predecessor that enumerated rights and liberties, including freedom of speech, the right to organize in unions, and the right to peaceful gatherings. It is worth noting <clears throat> that the new constitution, like its predecessor, preserves the powerful constitutional court, which can review and nullify existing and draft laws that the court deems to be um, in violation of the constitution or in violation of international human rights conventions and treaties. The court will be composed of nine senior judges serving in other high courts who will be appointed by the president himself. It is worth noting, it is also worth noting that on top of differences in the content between the 2014 constitution and the new one, there have been major issues surrounding the whole process leading to the drafting of the new constitution, including the extremely short time it took to draft it, as well as the most unexpected negative remarks made by the head of the drafting commission about the presidential amendments, in addition to the hostile local and international reactions. Just to illustrate some of the above remarks, the 2014 constitution was the result of a two-year drafting process involving jurists, political parties, and civil society before the National Constituent Assembly approved it in 2014. Syed's constitution was drafted by a panel whose members he named himself and who worked for four weeks behind closed doors soliciting little, if any, input from others. The panel was led by Sadok Belaid, a former constitutional law professor. The release of the draft only three weeks before the national referendum left little time for public reaction or debate. The committee submitted its proposed draft on 20th of June 2022 to the presidency. Ten days later, <clears throat> the official gazette published a draft constitution saying it would be put to referendum on 25th of July. On 3rd of July, Sadat Belaid publicly repudiated the draft as published, saying it was not the one his committee had prepared. In an interview with, um, uh, in an interview in French Le Monde, Belaïd said that the president should withdraw the, the draft, describing it as dangerous, regressive, and marked by a tendency to tyrannize power. Moreover, Syed's watering down of the three powers, i.e. the legislative, judicial, and executive powers, stripped them of their traditional name as powers, and are now referred to in the new constitution as functions, that can be dismissed at any time by the only power on top of the state pyramid, which is the presidential power. Faced with these radical changes in the new constitution, civil society and the political class, which has never been in Syed's good books, were up in arms. 
several Tunisian non-governmental organizations, such as the Tunisian Association of Democratic Women, the Tunisian Forum for Economic and Social Rights, and the National Union of Tunisian Journalists, expressed in a joint statement their deep concerns regarding the backsliding on democratic and human rights in the draft. Three political actors have been leading the opposition to the referendum and calling for a boycott. First, the National Salvation Front, which consists of five parties, including another movement and its ally, Qalb Tunis, as well as the Citizens Against the Coup cam campaign, in addition to an important number of MPs. Um, the the uh, uh, second one, second group, calling for boycott, is the secularist Free Destruction Party, PDL, led by Abir Moussi, who said the, the party would file a case to stop the referendum. An outspoken opponent of the Islamist Amnada party, <coughs> the PDL has chosen to act on its own. The third, an alliance of five mostly leftist left-wing parties, including the Republican Party and the Democratic Current at Tayyar, despite their opposition to Said, the alliance has refused to join banks with the with parties that dominated the political scene before uh, 25th of July, um, chiefly um, Al-Nahda, because they they are opposed to Al-Nahda. Moreover, there have also been hashtag campaigns on social media in support of a boycott. Examples include the Arabic hashtags, boycott the referendum, and down with the referendum. The country's most, part, most powerful trade union, the UGTT, uh, General Workers, um, the Tunisian General Workers Union, said in its um, focus, uh, said, said that its, it, it, its focus is on economic, not political issue. However, it criticized in a statement the draft constitution saying most notably that it does not establish a clear separation of powers and does not establish the civil nature of the state. However, the UGTT left its members the option to take part in the vote or to boycott it. Some believe the UGTT is keen not to burn bridges with Said, but that remains to be seen. Stopping short of calling Said's move a coup, a German foreign ministry spokesperson said it was important now to return really quickly to the constitutional order. The Turkish government said it was deeply concerned by the suspension of parliament and said it hoped that democratic legitimacy was soon restored. Um, and uh, last but not least, the United Nations called on all parties to exercise restraint and refrain from violence. Thank you very much for this very comprehensive answer, very useful. One of the things that have plagued Tunisia since the downfall of President Ben Ali has been the state of the economy, which took a, a, a deep dive after the various terrorist incidents, in particular the attack on a tourist resort. 
How would you characterize the present state of the Tunisian economy? Uh, good question. There, there, there is a, a undeniably growing frustration that <clears throat> the, the so-called revolution has never delivered better economic conditions. Deep-root problems of unemployment and crumbling state infrastructure that were behind the uprising have never been resolved. The state has fallen behind in paying civil servants salaries. Moreover, commodity prices, already high, have soared again as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For the majority of Tunisians who, in the so-called 2011 revolution, were expecting economic prosperity, more freedom and dignity, uh, constitutional changes are not at all a priority. However, the most burning concerns for them are economic. In view of the sluggish growth, approximately 3%, high unemployment, nearly 40% of young people, and galloping inflation. All these problems have increased the number of poor people to 4 million in a country of less than 12 million inhabitants. Tunisia's mishandling of the pandemic has given rise to a long-standing popular discontent with parliamentary politics. Thousands of people defied COVID-19 restrictions <coughs> sorry, and scorching summer temperatures in demonstrations which sparked clashes with security forces in several cities ahead of Syed's decisions on 25th of July 2021. The country, on the verge of default, with a debt of over 100% of GDP, found itself pushed into the arms of the IMF to negotiate a new loan. The loan, which some observers say may have a good chance of being granted, will require sacrifices such as cutting subsidies and wages in return, and the possibility of losing public service jobs which is likely to further inflame social discontent due to, to, to the possible adverse impact on the middle and lower classes. The Tunisian General Workers' Union decided um, a one-day strike to be held on 16th of June 2022 after Prime Minister Nejla Boudan Ramdan announced an economic and social program that the government submitted to the IMF, which includes freezing wages, cutting down jobs in public service, lifting subsidies, and the privatization of public companies. One day before the strike, the UGTT, the Workers' Union, blamed the government for going ahead with its reform plan without consulting the union um, that had social and economic questions that needed to be addressed. It indicated in a, in a statement that workers would hold this strike to defend their economic and social rights after the dithering of the government in the face of their legitimate demands. The strike decision was also in protest against President Syed's willingness to freeze wages and cut subsidies as part of the government deal 
to secure a four billion loan, four billion dollar loan from the International Monetary Fund, bearing in mind that this came in the context of the escalating political crisis in Tunisia, with opposition growing to what has been perceived as attempts by President Saeed to grab more power since he suspended the country's parliament in July 2021. Reports say that the strike brought the country to a halt and led to the closure of airports, public transport, ports and government offices. The government still went ahead with its talks with the International Monetary Fund as a mission led by Bjorn Rother visited Tunis between 4th and 18th of July to discuss potential IMF financial support for the authority's program of economic policies and reforms. At the end of the mission, Mr. Rother issued a diplomatic statement with no tangible results, results or practical outcome uh, that can be summarized in the following um, what I call diplomatic three points. The Tunisian authorities and IMF staff made good progress on the parameters of the authorities' economic policies and reforms to be supported by an IMF program. Discussions will continue over the coming weeks. The authorities are advancing with their economic reform agenda to maintain macroeconomic stability, support inclusive growth and strengthen social safety nets as well as tax equity. The IMF welcomes the openness of the government and social partners for a constructive dialogue um, on implementing uh, a socially conscious and growth-friendly reform program. Thank you very much. Uh, the Islamist Nahda party has been accused by many Tunisians of creating the environment which enabled Islamist terrorists and like-minded religious bigots to carry out their attacks in Tunisia. Is this accurate, uh, accusation accurate? I think to understand the situation, Mohammed, it's better to have a little bit of a historical background on how terrorism, well, radicalism and uh, ultimately terrorism um, uh, started in, in Tunisia. Organized Islamism started during the second half of President Habib Bourguiba's rule. It led to some level of violence uh, uh, during his successors in Al-Abidin bin Ali, who continued the repression initiated by Bourguiba against the Islamists. Um, however, another party reached unprecedented levels of popularity following the so-called 2011 revolution. Since then, it kept one foot in its kind of proximity to radical and terrorist movements, while keeping the other foot in the democratic process, as the party had the biggest number of parliamentarians in the assembly without ever having absolute majority. Um, the, uh, um, the, the, the first, the, the first um, organized, let's say, um, Islamist group in Tunisia was initially the Islamist Tendency Movement that was created in 1979 before be being renamed <coughs> Al-Nahda in 1989 as 
Ben Ali did not want political parties to carry the, any religious words like Islamic or Islamist or whatever. So they had to change the name. Um, the Islamic group activists were mostly concerned with reviving religion in the public sphere. At that time, uh, several, um, um, we're going to call them MTI now, uh, that's uh, the initials, the French initials for the Islamic tendency movement. Yeah. Um, at that time, several MTI leaders were uh, um, incarcerated, including Rashid Ghanoushi, and Bourguiba even threatened to ex execute them. To counter the state repression, a group of MTI activists created a secret military wing known as the Security Group, which sought to topple the Bourguiba regime. But in November 1987, Ben Ali staged a coup, coup d'etat against Bourguiba, and repression of the Islamists resumed under him. It was in this context that a few young Tunisians with links to Al-Nahda tried to take matters into their own hands in February 1991, a group of youthful activists burned the office of Ben Ali's ruling party in Bab Suiqa, in a neighborhood in the center of Tunis, leading to the death of one of the security guards in that fire. When President Ben Ali was ousted in 2011, another leaders sought cooperation with more conservative Salafis who had gained influence among the conservative youth in Tunisia in the 90s and the, the 2000, 2000s. Moreover, in the context of the security vacuum in the immediate aftermath of the so-called revolution, hundreds of prisoners escaped from jail, including many jihadists. Shortly after the establishment of a new regime, a general amnesty was declared for all the political prisoners and another party called for the liberation of all political prisoners, including uh, with a special focus and stress on the Islamists among, the, um, among these prisoners. Indeed, the Tunisian authorities estimated in 2012 that around 500 of these Islamists returned, uh, uh, well, uh, the, of these Islamists had um, returning Islamists had received military training abroad, whether in Afghanistan or Iraq. Those Salafi jihadists, taking advantage of the new political situation, formed various political organizations in order to enter the political arena. However, as we shall see, <clears throat> some of them chose to resort to violence and terrorism, which marked Tunisia for a number of years to come. It was within the newly formed organization Ansar al-Sharia of Tunisia, which we will call AHT, created in April 2011, that most of those former jihadists gathered under the leadership of Abu Ayyad al-Tumsi, a co-founder of the Tunisian Islamic Competent Group. Another leaders turned a blind eye to many Salafi incidents. In June 2012, Salafi, the Salafis attacked an art exhibition in the eastern Lamasa suburb of Tunis that they considered blasphemous. Only three months later, in September 2012, hundreds of Salafi protesters attacked the U.S. embassy in Tunis 
over a film depicting Prophet Muhammad in a manner that many Muslims found highly offensive. The incident left two people dead. Once another leaders realized that they had underestimated the Salafis and that the ultra-conservatives constituted a real security threat, they totally reversed their approach. They adopted a security response against any perpetrators of violence, a stance that was seen controversial as it may lead to increased radicalization in the Salafi movement, which it did. Nevertheless, the failure of another leaders to distinguish themselves more clearly from the Salafis early on and their decision to turn a blind eye to some Salafi agitation considerably damaged their image in the eyes of other political forces. Another managed, however, to collaborate with two left-wing parties to form the Troika government and pledged not to dominate political uh, politics single-handedly, in sharp contrast to how the Muslim Brotherhood behaved in Egypt, behaved in Egypt when it was in power in 2012 and 2013, Another pursued the same reconciliatory strategy following the 2014 elections when it joined the unity government formed by Nidat Tunis, led by Beji Qaid Sibsi. In 2013, when opposition to the Troika government mounted following the assassination of two left-wing politicians, Shukri Balaid and Mohammed Brahmi, another leaders agreed to cede power to a caretaken government as the Islamist party was suspected of having had a hand in their assassinations. Nidat Tunis' subsequent formation of a union government that included another, its proclaimed arch enemy for a number of years, was a major blow to another's support base. Alongside Nidat Tunis, Tunisia's leftist popular front coalition has repeatedly tried to link another to terrorism. Its members accused another government of directly res direct responsibility for the 2013 assassinations of Belaid and Brahmi, even though there was allegedly no available evidence backing this allegation. Subsequent government were not immune to terrorist attacks and did not fare better in fighting extremist violence. Nidat Tunis and the Popular Front have continued um, to focus their blame solely on another. The Popular Front requested an official judicial inquiry into another and whether it maintains a secret security wing with the goal of criminal, criminalizing the movement. Although the judiciary has yet to find sufficient evidence to open a formal inquiry, Whereas some observers noted that for as long as Nada is in power, it will keep trying to prevent any related investigation or trial for that matter. In March 2015, an assault in Tunis on the Bado Museum by Aqba bin Nafar Jihadi Brigade, affiliated to Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, led to the murder of 24 foreign tourists. In June of the same year, the city of Sousse was assaulted by ISIS, an attack in which 39 foreign tourists were killed. Worse, in March 2016, ISIS launched 
another strike, this time to take control of the border city of Bingaladan. This time, however, the Tunisian security services, supported by the local population, repelled the attack and inflicted heavy losses on ISIS. Three attacks, three events summarize the paradox of the trajectory of jihadi organizations in Tunisia. AST is Ansar Sharia had state authorizations which deliberately let them to act freely, especially in the region, the region of Kerwan, where besides its social activities, AST conducted combat demonstrations. They had their black flags of jihadist organizations hanging in total impunity. This implies that there was deliberate strategy on the part of the authorities to let AST expand. The government had finally closed the permissive environment that had allowed the organization to expand. However, those members of AST who escaped the repression were well versed in jihad. Tunisia had plunged into uncertainty and violence. The Hoqba, the Nafar Brigade, was essentially concentrated in the Sharambi Mountains area, in addition to the region of Mount Salum and Samama on the Algerian border, led by um, uh, Algerians, Algerians with some local support. It is interesting to note that Abu Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Abu Abdullah al-Jazairi, uh, spokesman of uh, Al-Qaeda and Maghreb, argued that the Uqba bin Nafa Brigade was not Algerian, nor was it under the leadership of um, Al-Qaeda and the Maghreb, but rather a local Tunisian jihadi organization. The purpose of this affirmation was to make sure this brigade would not appear as a foreign organization attacking their own country, but rather a Tunisian organization, and thus, and thus attract Tunisian volunteers. Those events, coupled with the dissolution of the um, Ansar al-Sharia, accelerated the upsurge of jihadi violence that struck Tunisia in 2014-2015, leading to the Islamic State, um, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, making its appearance in Tunisia. In June 2014, Shabab al-Tawheed, a Tunisian organization created in March of the same year, proclaimed its support and allegiance to ISIS. It was based in the city of Kerwan and proclaimed itself to be the Kerwan Islamic Emirate of Tunisia. In contrast, the most dangerous ISIS-affiliated organization in Tunisia was Jund al-Khilafa, the soldiers of the Caliphate, according to one Tunisian official. Jund al-Khilafa stemmed from split within the Uqba bin Nafa brigade between those who wanted to remain faithful to Al-Qaeda and those who wanted to join ISIS. Meanwhile, Abdahda remained reluctant to confront the Salafi jihadi groups spreading in Tunisia. Moreover, state officials also played a major role by turning a blind eye to radical groups when they did, when they did not simply encourage them. In view of its poor financial and material means, as well as its limited experience in anti-terrorism, Tunisia had to secure to, uh, its uh, Tunisians had to secure their borders with Libya and Algeria, two countries affected by terrorism, and more importantly, to seek regional and international assistance.
Declaring a state of emergency, the authorities closed the border with Libya immediately and decided to build a protective wall there. In practice, this meant obstacles, trenches, and a modern move movement detection system. Huda <clears throat> Mziba, a Tunisian expert on Libya, explained that this wall, built with Western support, played a major role in gradually restoring security and considerably reduced the infiltration of jihadists coming from Libya, which have now become a rarity. She further explained that since the Libyan government of national accord, the GNA, and another were both connected to the Muslim Brotherhood, this facilitated contacts and cooperation with Tunisia. The another party had strong relations with their Libyan counterparts. They play, this played an important role in convincing the GNA to take appropriate measures to secure the borders. Algiers provided training to Tunisian Algerian authorities provided training to the Tunisian special forces and shared intelligence. In that context, as early as 2013, the Algerian and Tunisian armies established a military commission in charge of preventing terrorism, infiltrations, and all kinds of trafficking. And less known, but very important, the Algerian army was directly involved in military operations in Tunisia itself alongside the Tunisian army in the Sharambi mountains against the Aqbab and Nefa brigade. Several agreements were also signed with France and the United States, including the delivery of weapons and training, as well as surveillance equipment. In that regard, the decision by the United States to elevate Tunisia to the states of major non-NATO ally facilitated, facilitated um, uh, Tun Tunisia's acquisition of advanced de defensive equipment. The United States also established a military surveillance facility, drones in Tunisia, and signed a status of forces agreement, uh, signaling a kind of strategic partnership between the two countries. Thank you. Uh, what is the security situation in Tunisia right now? Do the Islamist terrorists still pose a serious threat? <clears throat> I would say that the internal danger has become unlikely. But porous borders with Libya and Algeria, the ongoing instability in Libya, and the possible return of jihadists from Syria um, remain as possible reasons for worry and um, concern. Uh, there's uh, good news and bad news. The good news is that Abu Ayyad, the leader of Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, was killed in July 2015 in an American raid in Libya. Moreover, Luqman Abu Sakhr, commander of the Oqmab al Nefa Brigade, was killed in March of the, of the same year, while his successor, Abu Sufyan al-Sufi, was killed in April 2017. Um, dozens of members of this brigade and Jandal Khilafa were also captured or killed after massive military operation, operations um, um, launched by Tunisian security services. Um, Tunisian uh, officials uh, 
say that since late 2017 and early 2018, these groups can be considered uh, just a nuisance, uh, conducting very low intensity guerrilla warfare. In fact, one might call this intermittent terrorism, as they lack everything in terms of supplies, uh, whether food or medicine. Um, contained and defeated, the local jihadi organizations in Tunisia are perceived as much less dangerous than the problem um, of the Tunisian fighters who went to Syria and Iraq, as well as those who are in Libya and might be tempted to return to their country now that the ISIS <coughs> has been defeated. An estimated 800 jihadists have returned to, 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 to Tunisia and are either in jail or under heavy surveillance. To this number, one must add all those who have been detained by the Syrian authorities. The figures of those um, likely to return to Tunisia are difficult to ascertain, but represent a major threat if they return without the knowledge and surveillance of the security services. As an official explains, the hypothesis of undetected returnees joining the Aqba bin Nafa uh, brigade or ISIS cell cells is a very real danger. Tunisian officials and observers explain that while the homegrown jihadi groups in Tunisia have been largely contained, the danger now comes from Libya. Tunisia has considerably strengthened, strengthened itself. Nonetheless, the situation remains fragile and the future uncertain. Among the worrying issues are marginalization and economic problems, as I explained earlier, which cause the rise of jihadists remain very high. Libya is still unstable and poses major security concern. One of the major problems in Tunisia is that the state has neither a clear program for de-radicalization nor for the prevention of radicalism. Furthermore, there are neither program, programs for rehabilitation nor any plans for the integration of returnees. To deal with this, one of the options would be to strengthen the role of a very active civil society, including religious groups and government officials, to counter the spread of extremism. This would be beneficial, especially now that many young Tunisian foreign fighters are returning and surrendering to the authorities. A policy of reconciliation coupled with efficient measures to curb social and economic marginalization in the context of democratic institutions could also be instrumental in curbing terrorism. Thank you very much. Uh, my last question, uh, I know it's a bit too early to tell, but how do you see the present political situation developing is the new constitution and enhanced presidential powers likely to lead to stability in Tunisia? Uh, <laughs> your guess is um, as good as mine, Mohammed, And it is, uh, uh, quite frankly, a very, very important question. And as you said, it's too early to, to, to say. Basically, uh, my conclusions regarding my answer regarding this question, is based on the, the outcome of the referendum and uh, how the country is, uh, remains polarized. Uh, unfortunately, instead of 
consolidating the institutions and getting the country out of the ongoing state of political paralysis, it, uh, it has been uh, for a number of years. The recent referendum and the new constitution confirmed the state of general polarization in the country and kept the political class and the population as divided as ever. What is more, both ends of the political spe spectrum are not only strongly holding on to their positions, but determined to fight on, on any possible front, to have their voices and positions heard. While the supporters of the president keep praising the 1994.6% yes vote, the key opponents of the constitution contest the results based on a low turnout of 30.5% and deplore the infringement reported by the, uh, a number of political parties, NGOs and social media that cast doubt on the fairness of the vote count and the neutrality of the election commission. Just to give a few examples of the political uh, organizations involved in this, uh, whose positions have been public about the referendum from start to finish, I give you the National Salvation Front, a bloc opposing the referendum, including the Islamist and Nahda movement, its ally called Tunis and other parties, and political figures referred in a, uh, they, they, they all referred in a post on Facebook to um, sus suspicions of vote rigging and denounced the election commission's inflated results in an article published by the Turkish an Adulu agency while calling the vote as a sham. Al Jazeera Mubashir, a new fo news focused channel of Al Qatar, Al Qatar's Al Jazeera network, reported a Nahda leader and former parliamentary speaker, Rashid Ghanoushi, on 26th of July, calling the vote a farce and reiterating the view that the new constitution enforces one man rule. Habib Musi was party of the Free Constitutional Party campaigned against the referendum on its own, called in a press conference on 28th of July upon Qais Saeed not to ratify or publish the new constitution, which Abir Musi called as an imminent danger to Tunisian security. She questioned the legitimacy of the constitutional referendum held on 25th of July and called for holding early presidential elections before the end of September. She also urged the holding of legislative elections before the end of the year. Meanwhile, an alliance of five left-wing parties, including the Democratic Current at Tayyar, said in a press conference that it is planning to file lawsuits against all the election commission members, the prime minister and all cabinet members for fraud. The pan-Arab UK-based website Arabi21 quoted the alliance, alliance accusing the election commission of changing turnout figures and keeping silent on a major election um, offence in reference to the fact that President Said was seen to breach the sacrosanct electoral silence by giving a live statement broadcast on state TV after casting his vote on 25th of July to discuss the constitutional draft and anticipate the next steps he would take to implement his political project. Speaking in a, an interview post on Tunisian D1 FM YouTube channel, a Tayyar leader, Ghazi Shawashi, said that low turnout meant Said, Said failed to secure a majority vote for the new constitution, bearing in mind that some parties and political observers 
urged a minimum participation rate to deem the referendum's outcome legal, um, legal and le legitimate. In view of the 30% turnout, Shaweshi called on the president to step down because people have withdrawn legitimacy from him. Views about the legitimacy of the new constitution and the president himself with regard to the uh, low turnout differ between the supporters and critics of the constitutional referendum. In an interview with privately owned Mosaic FM, Mohsen Nabti of the Popular Trend Party dismissed as a farce the view that the low turnout meant the new constitution lacked legitimacy. He cited the example of an amendment of the French constitution, which he said had been adopted even though it had not secured a majority vote. While Tunisian political analyst and author Amin Snoussi made comparisons with some recent referendums in other countries where attendance was far higher, such as Uruguay in 2022, 86%, Chile in 2020, 51%, or the UK's Brexit vote in 2016, 72%. How will Syed possibly give legitimacy to the vote with such feeble turnout when the rationale behind his actions had been about popular support, Snoussi said. Beside the palpable disinterest among the large segments of the population reflected in the low turnout that doesn't grant the president the strong mandate he was hoping for, what further complicates the question of legitimacy is that the referendum process was marred by a number of irregularities. Meher Jadidi, the deputy head of the Electoral Commission told privately owned Mosaic FM on 20th of July that a number of the Commission's officials had been dismissed due to serious professional mistakes and confusion following the announcement of the referendum results. As the Commission on 27th of July deleted new numbers it had published the day before on its Facebook page and website following a deluge of comments online with social media users flagging up discrepancies with the results announced on 26th of July. The main concern that accompanied the entire process of Qais Syed constitution referendum is the possibility of undermining the country's leg legislative and judicial branches for years or even decades to come which may give rise to a resurgence of authoritarianism in a country that was long ruled by strongmen like Habib Bourguiba and Zin Abidin Ben Ali before the so-called 2011 revolution. Nabil Gassoumi, a teacher in Kasserine, 300 kilometers southwest of Tunis, told France 24, we are perhaps witnessing the birth of a new dictator. It may not be Qais Saeed, but it, but it will be his successor. And to conclude, Qais Saeed, who seems to be fully aware of this concern coming from national and international quarters, has dismissed warnings of constitutional power grab. It is not at this age that I will start a career as a dictator, he once noted ironically. Thank you very much. Uh, we seem to end every episode in this podcast on a pessimistic note. That was Tunisian analyst Dr. Ali Shukri talking to me, Mohammed El Dufani, on 5 minutes to midnight about the political situation in Tunisia.